This message was recorded during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Well, if you would turn in your Bibles with me to Zephaniah. Zephaniah, if you've been with us the past several weeks, then you're probably figuring out how to find these little books because we're deep in our series on the minor prophets. We've said they're called minor because they're short, but we've learned that they can pack a very powerful punch. And I think Zephaniah is no exception to that. The prophet Zephaniah lived during a time of great revival. He lived during the reign of King Josiah, who you can read about in 2 Chronicles 34 and 35. We see there that Josiah was used by the Lord to lead a revival of godliness among the people of Judah, among God's people. Now it can't be proven, but it appears to most biblical scholars that Zephaniah preached early in Josiah's reign, which would mean that the renewed interest in the Lord and in spiritual things that we see in Josiah's life and the life of the nation came as a result of the kind of prophetic preaching that we're going to be studying together. Zephaniah's message encouraged people by highlighting the greatness of God's power in judgment, but also the goodness of God's grace in love. Now we're going to look at several passages in this little book together this morning. So I want to start by reading just three representative verses Zephaniah chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, and then Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17. So first of all, chapter 1, beginning with verse 14, this is the word of the Lord. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day. A day of distress and anguish. A day of ruin and devastation. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. And now Zephaniah chapter 3 and verse 17. The Lord, your God, is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. May God add his blessing to this reading of his word, and let's pray for his help in our study of it. Father God, as, as Bill just taught us this is your word that you have given us by the power of your Holy Spirit. And so we would pray this morning that your spirit would be here to illuminate this word for our understanding. We pray, Father God, that you would open wide the eyes of our hearts so that we would behold wonderful things from this, your law. 
We pray, Father God, that you would help us to see afresh the glory of the gospel. We pray, Father God, that you would help us to see Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Lord, no amount of preparation or study or illustration or talking about this text will accomplish what we want to see accomplished today, but you can by the power of your Spirit. So I just pray, Lord, now that you would be with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week, Mike mentioned our recent pastoral retreat to the Smokies. It was a good time, I think, time very well spent, but to get there, we had to drive on U.S. Highway 121, otherwise known as the Tail of the Dragon. 318 hairpin turns in the space of about 11 miles, and if you're doing that with Jake Simmons at the wheel, like he's in a Jason Bourne movie or something like that, it's a very challenging ride. But as we were making our way to this section of highway, we drove past Chilhowee Dam, and I noticed a sign at the fishing area near the dam. I think we have a picture of the sign. There it is, a little blurry, hard to get that thing zipping by in your car. But notice what it says, extreme danger. If you notice changing conditions, get out. And that just really makes you want to kick back in your lawn chair there at the side of the lake, doesn't it? You know, extreme danger. Get out now. Take action now. Well, I am pretty certain that our brother, the prophet Zephaniah, would like that sign. Because that is his message for God's Old Testament people the people of Judah. He spoke to a nation of people whom he felt, because he had been convicted so by the Spirit of God, were in extreme danger. One commentator said, his message is very simple. There's a compelling simplicity about Zephaniah's message. He has only one topic and he never digresses from it. His book opens with a vision of world disaster, embracing both the outside world and the professing people of God. He identifies this disaster as the day of the Lord and calls for preparation. Zephaniah's message is that all people should be ready For the day of the Lord. We saw it in verse 14 of chapter 1. The great day of the Lord is near, near, and hastening fast. This phrase, the day of the Lord, is used in the prophets to refer to God's coming judgment. It often speaks of judgment that the original hearers experienced like the people of Israel in the northern kingdom who had already, already been destroyed by the Assyrians and the coming destruction of Judah, which Zephaniah may have witnessed in 586 B.C. after the good effects of Josiah's revival had passed. But the day of the Lord in Old Testament prophecy can also speak of a future day of judgment, even the day of Christ's coming. 
One Bible scholar explains it like this. Sometimes the day of the Lord is used in the Old Testament to speak of past judgment. More often, an impending future judgment is in view. Ultimately, though, the term refers to climactic future judgment of the world. So there is an immediate aspect of the day of the Lord in prophecy. Zephaniah preached because he wanted the people of Judah to repent of their sin then. But there is also a messianic and end of time aspect of the day of the Lord when we encounter that phrase in the Bible. But I'm sure that we're going to understand the main point clearly as we hear Zephaniah telling people they must be ready for the day of the Lord whenever it comes. That's his main point. And that, in fact, is our main point in the message this morning. We must be ready for the day of the Lord. We must be ready on the one hand because it is a day of judgment for those who reject God. And we must be ready on the other hand because it is a day of joy for those who trust in Him. Well, first of all, we must be ready for the day of the Lord because it is a day of judgment. God is the creator and ruler of the universe. Zephaniah is reminding God's people of that right at the beginning of this little book. By the way, we learn a little bit about Zephaniah in the first verse of chapter 1. We learned there that he is descended from royalty. Possibly, he was the great-great-grandson of another reforming and revivalist king, King Hezekiah. And maybe Zephaniah is sharing this right up front. He's kind of name-dropping because he wants to have the attention of the people that he is speaking to. But Zephaniah isn't bringing his own His own word, he's bringing the word of the Lord. Chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, that's the king, in the days of Josiah, the king, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. Hezekiah was a great king who loved the Lord. But his son Manasseh, not mentioned in the verse was the most wicked of all the Israelite kings. So there are, as maybe you've heard someone say, no second generation believers, really. Manasseh did not believe. Hezekiah's grandson, mentioned in the verse, Ammon, the king of Judah, did not believe. And so when we come to Josiah's day, when Zephaniah lived, the people had not only rejected the covenant that they'd made with the Lord God Almighty, they didn't even know what that meant. They had no category for obeying the creator God of all the earth. And so Zephaniah begins by telling them who this God is and what he is going to do. In verse 2, the Lord speaks, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble and the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. Verse 2 
tells that God's judgment is coming and it's going to be overwhelming. And verse 3 unpacks the judgment of God in a way that is meant to remind us of the creation account. It starts with man, the crown of God's creation, and then it mentions the beasts and the birds and the heavens and the fish. There are hints of Genesis 1 throughout this little verse. It's as if God is saying, I made it all, I rule it all, and I am the judge of it all. And these verses, they don't only remind us of Genesis 1, but Those of us who have the grace of living in the New Testament period, they might remind us of Romans chapter 1. Where God says, I'm the creator of the world and it's plain from looking at the world. But rebellious men and women in this world have rejected me and exchanged the truth for a lie. And so I now, God says, give them over to their sin. They are given over. When people reject the God who made them and and they reject the truth of God, a, a kind of a degeneration takes place. God is the creator of the world. That means he gets to set the standards for the world. And he's the judge of the world. And when people reject those standards God's way, it's a degradation. One commentator on this verse said, it it speaks of a sort of an uncreation that takes place. That is part of God's judgment. And that is why Zephaniah says the Lord is declaring, I will sweep everything away. God is the creator and ruler of the universe. And so the universe must be ready for the great day of the Lord. Zephaniah also shows that God is actively involved in the nations. There are many people who think that God is uninvolved in what's going on in the world. Some don't believe in God at all. Others think he may be real, but he's not really concerned about what's going on in their personal life or going on around them. That's very common, I think. We all know about that in our time. But it was common in Zephaniah's day as well. He writes about it in the 12th verse of chapter 1. The Lord says, At that time I will search Jerusalem with lamps. So there's going to be no dark corners or secrets before the the Lord. I will punish the men who are complacent. Those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. These people didn't think that God was that important. He was far away from what really mattered to them. Far away from what was going on in the world. But God is active in the world. And he makes that very clear. He says he's going to judge the nations. Through Zephaniah, he declares that he is going to judge the people who lived to the west of Jerusalem. That's in verse 5 of chapter 2. Woe to you, inhabitants of the seacoast, the nation of the Cherethites. The word of of the Lord is against you, O Canaan, land of the Philistines. This is Israel's ancient enemy. The Philistines, they were to the west of Jerusalem. But God says he's also going to punish those people who were on the east of Jerusalem. That's verse 8. I have heard the taunts of Moab and the revilings of the Ammonites. Verse 9 of chapter 2. Therefore as I live, declares the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Moab will become like Sodom and the 
Ammonites like Gomorrah. So the nations to the west will be judged by God. And the nations to the east will be judged by God. And the nations to the south will be judged by God. That's chapter 2 and verse 12. You, O Cushites, this is an Ethiopian dynasty probably ruling Egypt. You, O Cushites, shall be slain by my sword. So God rules over the nations to the west, to the east, to the south, but also the, to, to the north. Verse 13, God will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria. And he will make Nineveh a desolation, a dry waste like the desert. Zephaniah, by the way, was a contemporary of Habakkuk and Nahum who also prophesied the destruction of Assyria, this great world superpower. But notice what God is saying here. He will judge all the nations around Israel. West, east, south, north, all of them. In fact, even in the center where God's people lived, he would judge Jerusalem as well. Zephaniah chapter 3. Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled the oppressing city. There he's talking about Jerusalem itself. The capital of, of God's, God's, the kingdom where God's people were to live. Verse 2 of chapter 3. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Her officials within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that leave nothing till morning. Her prophets are fickle, treacherous men. Her priests proclaim profane what is holy. They do violence to the law. I was just talking and wasn't looking. Don't ever do that. You read when you're, read when you're reading. But these priests and these officials, these people who were to lead God's people, they, they didn't care about them. They cared about themselves only. And the people were led astray. But God cares about his people. And God will have justice. Verse 5 of chapter 3, the Lord within her is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice. Each day he does not fail, but the unjust knows no shame. God is involved in his world. He will judge the nations. He will judge the rulers of the nations. He was active in Zephaniah's day, and he's active in our day as well. God is actively involved in the life of the nations, and so the nations must be ready for the great day of the Lord. Zephaniah also warns that God's people must serve him alone. One of the biggest problems... And this is very important for us to understand. One of the biggest problems with God's people in the Old Testament is not that they totally rejected the Lord, but that they wanted to serve the Lord and something else. They, they totally missed the significance of the first commandment where God said, you shall have no other gods beside me. They wanted to have God and fill in the blanket. 
If you look again in chapter 1 at verse 4, the Lord says, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal and the name of the idolatrous priests along with the priests, those who bow down on the roofs to the host of heaven, those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom. Milcom was an Ammonite god. These people, these people wanted to serve the Lord so that he would help them fight their battles. But then they wanted to serve Baal so they could indulge their lusts. And they thought that Baal would bless their crops. And they bowed down to the stars. They did all kinds of wicked things. And they thought they could also serve the Lord. They wanted the Lord and. But this is not the way it works. The Lord is God and there is no other. And he says in chapter 2 in verse 11. The Lord will be awesome against them, for he will famish all the gods of the earth, and to him shall bow down each in its place all the lands of the nations. There is one God, and in his judgment he will starve all the false gods of the world. They are powerless before him, and he wants his people to serve him only. Zephaniah is calling God's people to be ready, to be ready for the day of the Lord. God was going to come in judgment, and he did in their time. Sadly, after Josiah's revival, just four kings later, God sent the Babylonians to destroy Judah and Jerusalem. He judged them in their time. But the Lord Jesus tells us he will come again as well. In fact, he says in Luke chapter 24, verse 44, You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So the message of Zephaniah is still ringing throughout the centuries, and I hope ringing in our ears. We must be ready for the day of Christ. And all this talk of Judgment for sin is kind of hard, it's kind of heavy, but it's good. Like the sign by the dam. A warning of extreme danger is good. And it led to revival in Zephaniah's day. There are people who study revivals. And there have been revivals throughout Christian history. There have been revivals in the world even during our lifetime. Harry Reader, in his book, Embers to a Flame, talks about his experience during a revival of Christian faith in the nation of Uganda. The country had suffered greatly during the reign of Idi Amin, but many people trusted in Jesus. And Reader says he went to preach there on a mission trip, and he preached in a church that had been burned in the war, and, and it didn't have a roof uh, but there were people gathered in there, a few hundred people. And he, so he preached a sermon in this bombed out building. And when he finished his sermon, uh, nobody left. Don't worry, I'm not really anticipating that that's what's going to happen today. But he preached the sermon and nobody left. And they wanted, him to, want, they wanted him to preach again. And so he preached a second sermon. 
And after he preached his second sermon, they wanted him to preach another sermon. So he preached a third time. And by the time he'd finished that third sermon, this crowd of people had been in the sun, in this roofless, burned out building for hours and hours. They wanted him to keep preaching, but he simply could not. But the people were eagerly seeking the Lord. It was a time of a time of revival. Dr. Henry Krabendam also had a long ministry in Uganda where he studied the elements of Christian revival. He said revival includes mighty prayer, mighty spirit-filled preaching, mighty conversions, mighty holiness, mighty spiritual combat, mighty leadership, and mighty worship. I love that list, by the way. Wouldn't you love to see those things in the church of Jesus Christ in our nation? That would be awesome. I love it. But Kramendam mentioned something else, something that came before those mighty things on his list. You know what it was? This is what he said. Divine anger because of grievous wickedness that led to a response of heartbroken devastation and repentance. Do we want revival? Yes. But are we ever heartbroken because of sin? We must be ready for the day of the Lord because it's a day of judgment. There's a temptation to soften these, these kind of points. I, I've felt it even this morning getting ready for this. I'm like, should, should I just make this a little bit more fun, you know, than it is? But there's a temptation. But it would be wrong because there's so much grace and warning of judgment. The 17th century pastor Robert Bolton put it this way. A man must feel himself in misery before he will go about to find a remedy. Be sick before he will seek a physician. Be in prison before he will seek for a pardon. A sinner must be weary of his former wicked ways before he will have recourse to Jesus Christ for refreshing. He must be cast down, confounded, a castaway, and lost in himself before he will look about for a savior. I have two points of application on this point. The the one would be, maybe this morning it's you and you feel like I'm speaking to you because you feel keenly a sort of a spiritual bankruptcy, knowing you're a sinner and that you're living against the standards of the almighty king and creator of the universe, the judge of all creation. Let me remind you again of the grace of repentance and that you can turn from sin and trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Don't miss the goodness of God if He is convicting you even right now of sin. You cannot ignore God's standards and believe that he's not involved or think that you can have him and your sin. It doesn't work that way. 
You cannot honor God in the love of money. You cannot honor God in sexual immorality. You cannot honor God in hatred towards other people. God will judge these things. But he is extending now a gracious warning to repent. I think another point of application for us impacts the way we we who desire to, to walk with God and honor God, it, it impacts the way we interact with the world. Because, you know, we talk and think and write a lot about what the world needs. But let's be clear, friends. What people in this world need the most is to make peace with the judge of the universe by trusting Jesus Christ. And we ought to be telling them about him. So... So friends, turn to Christ and tell others about Christ. Remember the sign, extreme danger, that's life without God. Get out, that's run to Jesus for refuge. Which leads us to a second point. I've only two points this morning. Second point, the first was we must be ready for the day of the Lord because it's a day of judgment for those who reject him. The second is we must be ready for the day of the Lord because it is a day of joy for those who trust him. God is declaring good news through Zephaniah. Here it is, chapter 2, verse 3. Seek the Lord... Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land who do his just commands. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the Lord's anger. The the perhaps here doesn't mean that God won't do it or that God can't do it. But remember, he's writing to a very complacent people. God is saying, you're not going to have me and, and, and another But God is mighty to save and he is able to save. He graciously calls and he he calls before the judgment happens. This is verse 2 of chapter 2. Before the decree takes effect. Before the day passes away like chaff. Before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord. Before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord. Seek the Lord. Seek the Lord before it's too late. God is declaring his joyful gospel to the world. And God is inviting sinners to joyfully take refuge in him. To come to him for safety. God rescues those who trust in him. He will have a people for himself, a people who live in purity and holiness. He'll rescue them and bring them into his presence. Chapter 3, verse 9. At that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. Here, he's not only talking to Israel. When he says peoples, he means all the nations. He will call to himself people from all nations. So here we know we're talking about a future event. There are even hints of a messianic event, the coming of Jesus to be the Savior. Verse 11, on that day you will not be put to shame. 
reminds me a little bit of the apostle writing in Romans chapter 10. He says, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved and you will not be put to shame. We are safe from sin and from shame because the Lord is the Savior. And the result of this, this invitation to, to, to seek shelter and safety in God is worship by God's people. In verse 14, sing aloud. This is of chapter 3, verse 14. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. Hear the King of Israel in verse 15. It's not Josiah. It's not Hezekiah. It's the Lord, their great God and their Savior. When you repent of your sin and trust in the Lord, you experience the joy that he has created you for. And that's good news. The reality, though, of how good our God is, I think is better than we can even begin to understand. In Zephaniah, we find what I think must surely be some of the most stunning words about God's love in the entire Bible. We've already read them once this morning. They're in chapter 3 and in verse 17. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud Singing. When you trust the Lord, He lives in you. He's in your midst. He's not far away. You're not alone. God is with you. This is the reason you were created. You were created to be in a right relationship with God. The Lord is in your midst and He is a mighty one who, save, who will save you. The judge becomes your Savior. When you repent of sin and trust Christ, you are saved from the judgment of God by God. Do you understand that? Who do you need to be saved from? God. Who's the only person who could save you from God? God. So God in his kindness sends Jesus to be the Savior. But it gets even more wonderful. It says, the middle of verse 17, He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. It's like a, like a mom Holding a little baby, speaking words of peace and kindness. This is how God treats us. This is how good he is to us. Amazingly, God rejoices over the salvation of sinners. For me, this is a little bit unexpected. I, I, I have this... Feeling, I think maybe my flesh wants to say, you know, God is going to let me into heaven because he's kind. And so he's going to let me just kind of slide in. But it's really so much better than that. The little word exalt at the end of verse 17, 
It's not exalt, E-X-A-L-T, which means to lift high. It's exult, E-X-U-L-T, which means something like brimming with joy. So God here is saying that, that when a sinner is saved, he is overflowing with joy and he sings loudly in his happiness. That's amazing to me. I, I don't even really have the right words. So I better let Matthew Henry talk. The great God not only loves his saints, he loves to love them. Do you hear that this morning? God loves to love you. The verse says he is singing loudly with joy over you who repent and believe in Jesus. He enjoys being your Savior. He loves to save people. It makes him happy to do it. He is a happy God when you are saved through faith in his Son. And the implications of this are, are amazing. You know, we're so good at getting things wrong. Sometimes we're like, you know, God's not going to judge sin. God, God doesn't care about all this stuff. And we're wrong. But then sometimes we dare to doubt his love and his goodness and his mercy and his grace. And we're wrong then too. Because he is a loving God. And if you this morning are thinking that you're not good enough for God, or if you think he's just tolerating you with a begrudging attitude, then you are misunderstanding who he is. He loves you. He sings over you when you trust in him for salvation. There's another stunning passage about the love of God. It's in the New Testament. In Romans chapter 8. It says, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God loves to love his people. Zephaniah preached to encourage the people of Judah to turn to God. And he did it by reminding them that God would judge the world. But also by reminding them that they can find joy in salvation. Hope you're encouraged. Hope you're encouraged to think about the joyful love of God. Personally, brothers and sisters, I hope you're encouraged. But I hope you're also encouraged for other people you know. Maybe you know someone who's very hard. They're a very hard individual. They seem unlovable. Perhaps they've rejected your love. But with our great God, there is hope for them. Remember, God loves to save people. It makes him happy. He can do it. He can even use your witnessing to help save them and bring someone to salvation. So never stop promoting the love of God to your unbelieving friends. The day of the Lord could be for them a day of joy. Well, the people of Zephaniah's day experienced a revival. Included conviction of sin. When King Josiah's men discovered the book of the law in the temple and they shared it with the king, he tore his clothes and he said this, Great is the wrath of God that is poured out on us because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord. And the people mourned their sin and it pushed them to revival. But after placing their trust in the Lord, they celebrated his greatness and they were filled with joy. 
2 Chronicles 34 says that Josiah celebrated the Passover like no other Israelite king. He was full of joy and repentance. And no doubt God was singing as well. And wouldn't it be wonderful for us to experience a revival in our nation like the people of Judah did during Zephaniah's day or like the people of Uganda did in the 1980s? I would love to see that in our country. I know you would as well. But we need to remember that national revival starts with a personal revival when a man or a woman is convicted of sin and trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ knowing Christ makes a difference in a person's life and the more people who know Christ the more of a difference it'll make in our community and in our country Jennifer and I met a young man in Madagascar when we spent time there years ago his name was Sulafu Sulafu was the first person in his family to ever go to college so he moved to the city, was living with his uncle so he could attend the university there. And yet he heard the gospel at a campus ministry. And he gave his life to Christ. And, and he was full of conviction that the pagan worship of his family, the worship of their ancestors, was offensive to the creator God and judge of the universe. And so he refused to do it. He was thrown out of his family's home. He was homeless for a while, living on the street. He finally got a low-paying job working as a groundskeeper. He lived in a little shack. It wasn't quaint at all. It was gross. He lived in this little shack. But this guy, Sulafu, I, I, to this day, he is one of the happiest people I've ever met in my life. And I recall one time walking by him. He was, he was mowing the grass, literally, with a pair of scissors. Mowing the grass, clip, clip, clip. And I looked down and I said, Sulafu, why are you so happy all the time? And this, this was his answer. He said, piece of cake. I don't, I don't know why he said that. He liked to say that. Piece of cake. The Lord is near to me. God loves me. Here's a guy who had been convicted of sin, who trusted Christ, Despite his circumstances, he experienced the joy of the Lord. And I am sure that the Lord sings over this guy. Don't you believe that the world would be different if there were more people like him in it? People ready for the day of the Lord. People who understand the justice of God and his grace and love and who live in his joy. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for these gospel words from Zephaniah. We pray now, Lord, that you would just impress them upon our hearts. We pray, Father God, that you would work greatly in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message recorded during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. To find out more about Cornerstone Church of Knoxville, visit us at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com or call our church office at 865-694-4356. We'd love to have you join us in our mission to treasure 
grow in and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ.